American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. That's a very sweet time Ready? Really strong. Waldo. Lagunina's Waldo. Real okay. sweet. Shush. Real strong. Welcome, Welcome to another to episode of... I, okay. Sorry. No, I can't do it when you're doing it. Shit tits. Are you shush? I love you. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe. And we're so in love. Oh my God. <laughs> ah, we can't get enough of each other. All right. We're like newlyweds. No. Yeah, we just we're just making out a second ago. Boom. Uh, no, that's incorrect. Okay, we, we weren't making out. I was drinking a beer. Okay. And uh today we do not have any guests. Yes, we told we're the f- guest we had a guest and I told him to fuck off. No, Get out of here. You're not welcome on this podcast anymore. Get the fuck out of here. But we can finally uh, do yeah, the podcast with our shirts off Yeah, if we, we want to. Yeah, if we want to take our shirts off, we can. Yeah, we decided, you know, sometimes it's it's a lot of work to have guests uh, for them and us and, like, getting all the stuff set Who cares? up. And you gotta, yeah. We, don't, want, we yeah. don't need to go through <laughs> yeah, this true. whole thing. But this time we don't have a guest. This is a guest-free episode. This is a guest-free episode and a rape-free episode, right? Correct. Yay! No rape, no rapey, rapey, no guesty, guesty. Let's start in May, and we did two months last episode, so we are in May of mm-hmm. 1952. Yeah. And Amy, we, from what I understand, we are going to start with you. You, your murder or whatever you have starts at the beginning of the month. So it's going to be one of those rare treats where Amy actually begins the episode droning on and on about whatever horrible awfulness she has. Okay. I'm going to ignore you and begin. I so, love you, but I'm going to try to So I'm starting May 1st, okay. 1952. All right. I'm not even going to tell you what I'm going to try to do. I'm just going to just slip it in and we'll see what happens. Hello. I mean, I didn't mean that right. <laughs> innuendo. All right. On May 1st, 1952, yep. two-year-old Shirley Diane Weldon greeted her aunt Earl Dennison. Wait, sh- her aunt's name is Earl? Yes. It's a... E-A-R-L-E. Oh, so that's a female version of Earl? Yes, I guess. Um, he, so he's greeting his aunt. She's greeting her aunt. The same day... Oh, she is greeting her aunt. The same day that Mr. Potato Head was introduced? Yes. I mean, we talked about the first mm-hmm. commercial, but this is when they were introduced... Also, the TWA introduced tourist class for the first time. Yeah. And U.S. Marines took part in an atomic explosion and training in Nevada. Okay. That sounds like they were doing that pretty much all month, all year, uh, all the 50s. Okay. So, yeah, she greeted her Aunt Earl with a big hug and climbed up on her lap to enjoy the orange soda that Earl gave her. Oh, Aunt Earl. I love Auntie Earl. My TT, she brings orange soda. And shortly after then... Earl, I love that there's an 
Shirley became violently ill, vomiting on her mother and complaining of a severe stomachache. Was it the orange soda? Earl, an operating room nurse with 25 years of experience, gave Shirley another soda to help settle her stomach. Oh, something with pepsin in it. The toddler was unable to keep the drink down and again was stricken with a bout of throwing up. About five hours later, afflicted with severe convulsions and an obvious pain, Shirley Diane died. Oh, no. At the Wetumpka, Alabama Hospital. The what? What, Alabama? Wetumpka. Wetumpka? So this Auntie Earl poisoned her. Would seem so. I'm hoping it's not on purpose. Shirley's mother, Cora Bell Weldon. Yeah. Had delayed taking her daughter to the doctor because she trusted the advice of the nurse who said Shirley was simply suffering an upset stomach. Is the nurse her sister? No, this was a different nurse. Taking Shirley to the physician earlier would not have saved the girl's life, pathologists said. Really? Shirley's death was an almost identical repeat of an earlier tragedy for the Weldon family. Oh, no. On the day Shirley was born, her older sister, Polly Ann, was being watched by Earl yeah. when she also became profoundly ill with stomach pains and vomiting after being given a celebratory ice cream cone by her aunt. Gosh, this crazy woman's poisoning these children. In the same hospital where her mother had hours before given birth to another healthy baby girl and where Earl worked... Polly Ann died. Oh, no. No one suspected foul play when Polly Ann died, and the matter was simply put down to a tragic event that would forever mar the celebrations of Shirley's birthdays. Uh, Yeah, the first time you're not going to think anything, but now she's got to be thinking, fuck Earl. Right. So Earl, 52, was the girl's aunt only through marriage. Oh. Under the law, she was actually considered an aunt-in-law. Because okay. she was related to the Weldon family through her marriage to the late Lem Weldon, oh, so Corabelle's brother. Yeah, she married that guy, and that guy's dad, and it's not really even a family member. Yeah. I mean, kind of. So then immediately after Shirley's death, yeah. Corabelle and her husband Gaston suspected huh. foul play. Wow, in their Gaston. eyes, there was only one consistent factor in the deaths of their daughters, Earl. and it was Earl. Her name is Earl. Earl. They demanded an autopsy, which was performed by oh. Dr. C.J. Relling, the state toxicologist. Uh-oh. While Earl watched the procedure, Relling examined the girl's organs and found overwhelming indications that the girls had been poisoned. Earl was watching the Yep. She's a nurse. Autopsy? Oh, gosh. Um, but maybe not let the suspect in there I know, watching. Right? She's going to hit somebody with an anvil. Heavy metal poisoning leaves a number of readily visible signs. The, really? muco- the mucosa of the body displayed an uncharacteristic bright red color. Oh, you know when that mucosa that's a, is bright a, red. Mucosa is a moist tissue that lines particular organs and body cavities throughout the body, including nose, mouth, lungs, and gastrointestinal tract. Duh, everybody knows that. And there was, all the, there was also Aldrich Mies lines on the little girl's fingernails. Wait, she had Aldrich Mies lines on her fingernails? Each of these told Relling to examine the tissues for arsenic, oh. which he found in above normal amounts. Really? Relling also examined physical evidence taken from the Weldon's home. After his wife took Shirley to the hospital, Gaston Weldon gathered up several items he felt were connected to Shirley's illness. In a paper bag, he put his wife's vomit-soaked dress, the little girl's similarly coated clothes, a towel, a Coca-Cola bottle, and he stored the items at his brother's house until Shirley died, at which time he turned them over to the county coroner. Here's a bunch of barf-covered stuff. Yep. The coroner gave the items to Rawling, who detected large amounts of arsenic on the clothing. Yep. There was no arsenic found in the soda bottle. Huh. At the Weldon home, however, police found the cup 
that Shirley used to drink the orange yeah. soda, and uh, that was, was found to have trace amounts of arsenic. Frickin' Earl. Two witnesses would later say they saw Earl take the Coke bottle and cup into the kitchen, although no one saw her wash them. Uh. Cora Bell, however, recalled that Earl had brought the Coke in from outside the house and was gently shaking it just prior to giving it to Shirley. Why would she even be doing that? Why is she killing children? Police learned that while Shirley was being treated by doctors, Earl left the hospital and stopped off at a local insurance agency and paid a past-due premium on a life insurance policy she had taken out on Shirley. Wait a minute. She can't take a life insurance out on that kid. The policy was set to lapse due to non-payment on May 2nd, 1952. Uh, May 2nd, 1952 is going to lapse the same day that the first scheduled jet airliner passenger service began with a British Overseas Airways Corporation comet from London to Johannesburg carrying 36 passengers. And the same day that John Cage's water music, uh, this weird guy that plays music by like swishing things around in a bathtub and hitting jars, uh, using a piano, radio, whistles, water containers, and a deck of cards, premiered in New York City. There's oh a video geez. of it of him on YouTube. I'll play like as we're going out. Okay. Uh, um, yep. So in the 1950s, Alabama did not require insurance agents to have permission from people or even notify them when life insurance are policies were purchased fuck? against their lives. Are you fucking Can you kidding me? believe that? That's something you should probably have put in place when you put yeah. in. Are you fucking kidding nope. me? I wonder if there's a database somewhere of all the people that took out. There was one case, Mary Perkins, who worked in collusion with an agent to take out life insurance policies on as many as 150 people without their knowledge. (sighs) You would just like pick people that you see somebody who's about to die. Oh, that guy's old as fuck. I'm taking one on that guy. Seriously. He's going to be dead soon. Today, they uh, require a signature of the person named in the policy. Yeah. I think you should do that, maybe, dude. At least. The very least. What in the hell? So What's eventually, going on in this world? eventually, investigators learned yep. that Earl had taken out five thousand five hundred dollars, which is about fifty five thousand dollars yeah, in today's money. Yeah, ain't nothing now, but it was then. Worth of insurance on the little girl. Oh, uh, it, if therefore it were necessary to search for a motive, we would find it here. The Alabama Supreme Court would opine later. Yeah, they should opine that on May eighth. Oh, you have May eighth. Yes, also on May eighth. The same day that, all right, I won't, I'm skipping May 3rd and 5th. Uh, May 8th, the same day that Of The I Sing opens oh. at Zigfield Theater in New York City for 72 performances with a seating capacity of 1,638. That is such a problematic musical. Yeah, so you were in it. The yeah. only reason I included it, I had this anyway before you gave me that date because that, when I first met you, yes. you were performing on stage. Yes. In of the I see. Is this the one where you had to wear a bathing suit? Yes. Yeah. And so you were wearing a bathing suit, and I was there with my I girlfriend. I was Diana Devereaux. Yeah. And I had to pretend I didn't think you were cute in your bathing suit. And, in fact, the girl I was with actually asked me, she said, do you think she's cute? I was like, no way. Oh. Don't like her at all. But That's I really cute. was enjoying the the sight of you. Okay. Bathing suit. But anyway, this was the Zigfield Theater. I looked up a little bit about that. It was named for the famed Broadway impresario Florence Zigfield Jr., Mm -hmm. who, 
happened to be born in Chicago and personally witnessed the Great Chicago Fire when he was a kid. Wow. So a little funny thing. Yeah. So this Ziegfeld Theater was a big deal, and uh, it was mostly known for uh, – it, it did have the icing, but it was known more for their other show. Ziegfeld Follies, probably. Yeah, well, the, yeah, Ziegfeld Follies. Ziegfeld did the Follies, but I don't think the theater did. But oh. It was uh, – I think I deleted I just – who cares? I narrowed it down, so it was uh, Showboat. That's what. It oh, was. okay. They were known for Showboat, and it was torn down in 1966, much to many people's chagrins because it was like an original Broadway theater. Yeah. So on May 8th, <coughs> while of the icing is going to get ready to open, what yes, happened? Earl Dennison was arrested for the murder of Shirley Weldon. Wow. When the sheriff arrived to take her into custody, he found Earl in bed. He gave her a few minutes to dress, only to find that while he waited, Earl took an overdose of barbiturates in a suicide attempt. Oh, what? She was taken to the hospital and had her stomach pumped. Within a couple days, she was taken to the Julia Tutwiler Prison for Women in Wetumpka. Oh, but that's a rough prison in the 50s. I wonder what, was there pictures of this Earl? Yeah. She looks like a spinster kind of. No, she, I pictures I, I'm picturing my great grandmother. Yeah, like an older lady with cat eyeglasses. There, in the presence of the prison superintendent Edwina Mitchell Relling and Sheriff Lester Holly, Earl yeah. confessed in writing to, to the murders. During the four-hour questioning, Earl was as cool as anyone could be. Holly told the press. Really, authorities exhumed. She had the, just tried to kill herself, and she's cool as a cucumber. Yeah. And authorities exhumed the body of Polly Ann, who, who had also been insured by Earl, yeah. and found fatal traces of arsenic. They also so she, she cashed in on the first kid, yep. huh? They also dug up Lem Weldon's body, but he apparently died of natural causes. Uh, I Earl forgot was, who that was. That was her husband? Yeah. yeah. Earl was set to go to trial on August 14th, 1952. Oh, wait. She, are you telling me the truth here? She was set to go on trial... The same day that UK Prime Minister Anthony Eden, who was mm-hmm. 55 years old, wed the UK Prime Minister's niece, the previous, another Prime Minister's niece, Clarissa Spencer Churchill, who was only 32, in a civil ceremony at Caxton Hall, London, that same day? Yes. That day? Wow. What a weakening. So she was set to go to trial on yeah, that day. Yeah, she'd get ready to go on trial. But the day before she was to appear in court, she smuggled a razor blade into her cell and again attempted suicide. Tried to kill herself. But she the was problem was- Foiled a second just, time. She was, instead of killing, she didn't know how to kill herself, so she just shaved her legs instead. So she just thought, I'll just be rough with my legs and that'll bleed to death. And it didn't work. Right. Probably. I Maybe. Maybe not. The trial began the next day, and the prosecution presented overwhelming evidence that Earl committed the crimes. Overwhelming evidence. She countered by admitting she had access to arsenic, but she was she said she, she was just using it as a bug killer. She had already signed a confession, though. I know. She's, but They're going to use that against Earl. Yeah. The all-male jury convicted her, her and recommended a death sentence. Ooh. The sentence made national news because she was the first white woman to be condemned to die in Alabama's electric chair. Oh, yeah, because Alabama only executes black people. Yep. Justice was swift black in the men. 1950s, and on September 4th, 1953... Whoa! Are you about to tell me that they put her to the chair the same day mm-hmm. that Lawrence Hilton Jacobs was born in New York City, New York? Yes. The fifth of nine children of parents Hilton Jacobs and Clotilda Jacobs. The same Lawrence Hilton Jacobs who studied acting with the Negro Ensemble Company and the Al Fan Theatrical Ensemble. And in 1975, he won the role of Freddie Boom Boom Washington on the ABC hit comedy series Welcome Back, Cotter. That same day? Yes. She was put to death? 
She right. might be I reincarn- can't even find my place. Wait, you think she ridiculousness. was ridiculousness? Ridiculous. Freddie Boom Boom Washington. Yes, she was electrocuted on that day. She, she was fifty-five. So Freddie Boom Boom Washington could be. She could be reincarnated as Boom Boom. She has. She said, "God has forgiven me for all I've done." She said while being strapped Maybe into the know. yellow wooden chair. Maybe. Please forgive me for what I did. I forgive everyone. Gaston Weldon was somewhat magnanimous in his post-execution comments. Yeah. I feel nothing but sorry for Mrs. Dennison and her family, but at the same time, I have to remember that she did not show any mercy to my little girl. Hell no. The Weldon Hell's family no. would eventually win a $75,000 wrongful death settlement against the companies that insured the two girls. Really? Yeah. Boom. Yeah. Sue those motherfuckers. Uh-huh. That'll change the rule real fast. That's right. They argued that because Earl had no insurable interest in the children, the company should have been suspicious of her motives. Her name was Earl. The the Alabama Supreme Court upheld the verdict, stating that the acts of the defendants placed the insured child in a zone of danger with unreasonable harm to her and that the defendants in issuing the alleged illegal contracts knew or by the exercise of reasonable diligence should have known that oh Mrs. Dennison had no insurable interest in the life of the insured. You can't fucking just insure anybody, bro. Earl. And that's the story of Earl. That is a effed up situation. Earl the poisoning motherfucker. I can't believe that that even was a thing that you could do. You could just take out an insurance on anybody. That is the dumbest fucking I thing know. I've ever heard. Everyone here is now dumber <laughs> for having heard that. Well, uh, you're not no, dumber no. for ha- for knowing that no, that was a thing. I know. Thing. I just can't believe that was a thing. Like what? It just. I guess it you just, would think that'd be rule number one. Oh yeah, it would. But but that's the world. That's the country we live in. That's the world we live in. Yeah. That like that was a thing. Like mm-hmm. we just there was a state that just did that, and probably maybe multiple. It's just like I I've immediately lost all hope. Yeah. <laughs> for all humanity, like no wonder. I did it a long time ago, really. I know, but Lose no wonder. Hope. Like you, this is what was going on in the fifties when our parents were being born. Like. No wonder we are where we are. Like, this is what, this is who we are, people that did that. Like, we really, that was a, what is. Well, yeah. What's the, how the, what the. I mean, people are just as dumb today. Oh, I know. They voted for Donald Trump. Well, let's not get into politics now. I'm just saying. So I'm going to back up because you scooted through some things through May here, through this story. Yes. Which was very good. That was a very you good like story. Yeah, I really liked it. Good. I mean, I'm not mad at the story. Actually, it was very concise and fucked up and weird. Like something you yeah. think that would never happen. Um, But so there's a couple things you skipped. So you went from May 2nd to May 3rd. Right. On May 3rd. I'm going to back up to May 3rd real quick. Okay. Because on the May 3rd, you know, I don't have a lot of things. I'm just trying okay. to find something you to talk about. You don't have to about. get defensive. Just go. No, I'm just saying that just we're go. almost done with the episode. I got to find something to talk about. May, <laughs> May 3rd yes. was the first landing by an airplane yeah. at the geographic North Pole. Oh. So think about that. Before then. They probably could, they couldn't get there with enough gas or something. Well, think about planes. Like planes were crashing all the time. Like. Like that's always boggles my mind. Like planes can go around the world now and stuff, right? I think they still have to stop. Like, and how do you fuel up? But then sometimes planes go across the ocean, yeah. and they don't need to refuel. That's insane to me. Yeah, they got a lot. They can hold a lot, which yeah. which is why if they crash or whatever, it's going to be a big explosion. 
mushroom cloud. But anyway, this was a, a ski mushroom stamp. This was a <laughs> ski modified U.S. Air Force C-47 piloted by Lieutenant Colonel Joseph O. Fletcher of Oklahoma yeah. and Lieutenant Colonel William P. Benedict of California. They became the first aircraft to land on the North Pole. A moment later, mm-hmm. Fletcher climbed out of the plane and walked to the exact geographic North Pole. And they think he's probably the first person in history to do that. Did he pee in the snow and make it yellow? He got his dick stuck to the pole. Yeah, he probably uh, did. And, you know, it's kind of like that scene from Christmas Story. Yep. Instead of his tongue, it was his wiener. In the early 20th century, in the early 20th century, American explorers Robert Perry and Dr. Frederick Cook, mm-hmm. both claiming to have separately reached the North Pole by land, publicly disputed each other's claims. So... In 1911, Congress had to formally recognize Peary's claim, uh, but in recent years, further studies of the conflicting claims suggest that neither one actually reached the exact North Pole. They were just like in the vicinity, um, but that Peary came probably closer, but fell 30 miles short. Um, Who cares, really? Yeah, I, I don't know. They just people, people cared about that yeah, shit I back know they then. Did, what yeah. else did you? Have? You didn't have a cell phone. Uh, (laughs) Then you got a cell phone and you stopped caring about anything. But standing there with Fletcher, Colonel Fletcher, was Dr. Albert P. Crary, a scientist who later in 1961 traveled to the South Pole Mm -hmm. by motorized vehicle, becoming the first person in history to have stood on both poles. Oh, say. And then the whole thing ended up being moot because, unknown to Fletcher and his team, a Soviet expedition had previously landed Three Lysunov Li-2s at the pole on April 23rd, 1948. So it turns out, in hindsight, they weren't actually even the first one. So the whole, th- the whole thing's thing is just a bunch of bullshit Oh, to fill time. Well, I, maybe I, they, and then probably in the 70s, they had like first twins, per, first twins that went to the pole. Yeah. First one twin at each the pole. F- the fattest twins. The fattest twins. I know those guys on the motorcycles. bikes. Motorcycles. <laughs> those, those the poles. Get those fat guys on the bikes and the, that guy with the long fingernails. Get those <laughs> and the guys. mustache and guy. The, the two-headed Asian guy. The twirly guy. mustache yeah. guy. Yeah. Uh, we'll get those there. Uh, so th- I got this info from history.com. Uh, oh, oh, Published by A&E Television Networks. The article title is Joseph Fletcher, Land's First Aircraft on the North my, Pole. Um, my... Main source was markgribbon.com. Mark Gribbon, is that G R I B B O N? Yeah, that's correct. And Mark Gribbon, it was y'all. Murderpedia. Murderpedia. And Wikipedia. And Wikipedia. Murder. Uh, Wikipedia is. It's just like Murderpedia, but it's just for information without murder. No, Murderpedia <laughs> has. It, it will. Cons- it will. Like any newspaper oh articles that yeah. were written will be. It like. Collates it all for you. Is there a pedia for everything now? Probably because there's like a Wikipedia a for Star Wars there characters. There's Joepedia for GI Joe characters. There's Pornopedia. No, there probably is. There probably is. Yeah, there probably is. Don't look okay. it up. I won't. That's a work computer. This is my personal computer. I can look up all the porn I want. That's right. You bought yourself a personal computer recently, so, so I could look up porn all I wanted. Okay, the next thing I have, don't look at what I'm going to click. Did you look at I it? need a computer, a personal computer. I got one over here for you. I, giving me crappy, yeah, Henry's crap old, old one. Yeah, you don't need anything good. You don't even know how to use it. I beg your pardon. 
Okay, hold on. Don't look. I'm going to play something for you. Why can't I look? Because it'll give it away. You got to listen. Close your eyes. And this was the so day this, this first aired. So why don't you join the thousands of happy, happy people and get a great big bottle of Myometer Amidjament. Lucille Ball. like the most famous episode ever the vitamita medjibin vitamita medjib i can't even say it uh vitamita vegemin so she's doing a commercial mm-hmm. and this thing's got alcohol on in it like 20 oh so she alcohol, can't say it and she's as she keeps trying it, it tastes real terrible but she gets real drunk oh and so it's like the one of the most famous things of Lucille Ball ever. It's yeah. like the, that the was vitamin. Everybody knows about that. So I thought you would know that right away. Um, but that was when this episode, Lucy, aired. Lucy Does a TV Commercial aired, um, garnering 68% of all U.S. television viewers. That's huge. Remember, uh, though, probably three cha- three channels. Yeah. So everybody yeah, everybody was watching that. one of three. But that's thing, like, everybody saw that. Like, this is, like, a yeah. famous thing. Like, right. Lucy people recreate this all the time. In later reruns, the scene where Lucy is in a broken television set, it was edited to remove references to Philip Morris because it was sponsoring I Love Lucy at the time. Oh. But when they banned tobacco advertisements, they had to take it off. But the DVD release, as well as the colorized episode, restore it. Um, So apparently the Vitamita Vegemin thing had... 23% 23% originally had 11% alcohol. That makes me think it's, it was a real thing. Uh, but it was increased to 23% on the show, so it must have been a real thing. Yeah. The bottle from which Lucille Ball was at, at first pouring the tonic and later drinking from directly actually contained apple pectin. Whatever that is. It's like a... I looked it up and I still don't know what it is. Uh, Anyway, the, this sketch was originally... It probably had gelatin involved because yeah, it's the 1950s. It's like a, I looked it up. It's like a gelatin weird extract. Like it's yes. extract mixed with weird shit that yep. you get from fruits. Um, Cod liver like oil a, or something. Yeah, it's like weird. a white, liquidy, weird... I don't know. Uh, this sketch, though, was originally created by Red Skelton and had been part of his vaudeville routine since the 30s. Oh. And Skelton granted Ball permission to use it in I Love Lucy, which I had no... Idea. Oh, okay. So we can you can say that now next time yeah. you see it. Um, the dress she wore during that rehearsal scene is owned by actress Laura Dern. Oh. She owns that now. And uh, and I bet he has a 23-inch waist. Yeah, Because probably. that's She's how tiny. all women in the 50s were built. Like, yeah. people's waists were so tiny compared to now. How? Why? It's all the hormones and the Oh, they didn't meat. eat hormones then. I guess. I don't know what else. And sugar. Everything's got sugar in it. Well, apparently Deborah Messing recreated this scene because everybody thinks she looks like Lucille Ball. Let's talk more about um, overweight, like middle age, overweight issues. Okay. What do you want to talk about it? No, I'm just kidding. Let's not. Want to talk about how hard it is to put her pants on? Now? Let's not talk about it. I'm just kidding. Okay. Well, May seventh was the, the concept of the integrated circuit. The basis for all modern computers was first published by Jeffrey Dummer. And I, I it did like a whole deep dive on his life, and it's really boring. I really couldn't find much at all. So, so do you want me to nope, cover it? Nope. <laughs> nope. But basically, like, before, like, he created the circuit board, like, that you could put different circuits in. Just yeah. Like, in, like, silicone, put them all together. Before, they had to be, like, big, in big mega giant. computers. That's why the computers were so big and everything. Now they can be, like, in a little 
Uh, That's I mean, pretty nice of him. Yeah, I, 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 I'm amazed these like all circuit, like the hard drive that I had to replace in the computer was like yeah, it was a circuit board like this with all the information that we ever had. Our three terabytes were in like this little tiny much thing room. Yeah, it could fit well, they in make my them like hole. they make them like the size of a period from a typewriter. Yeah, that's nuts, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that guy was from. And they make Hull. cameras that size. The guy was. The guy. A couple things about that guy, Jeffrey Dummer. Yeah. His name was Dummer, and he was from a town. You called sure that's how it's pronounced? D u m m e r. How else are you going to pronounce it? Well, I'm just saying. Dumer? Dumer? Maybe Dumer. Dumer. Or something. Dumer. He was English. He was born in Hull. Dummer. Uh, a town in England. That same place that Fat Boy Slim is from. Okay, I'm done with that story. Also, that dumber guy, he worked for a guy named R.J. Dippy once. <laughs> R.J. Dippy. Dippy. I am not Dippy. Anyway, this was accepted as the first public description of an integrated circuit. We talked about May 8th when Of the Icing came out. And then we got May 15th besides Freddie Boom Boom Washington. So this is a, mm-hmm. uh, we have our first birthday, so hit the music. <laughs> May 15, 1952, American actor from The Usual Suspects and Bronx Tale was born in the Bronx, New York. Do you know who wrote The Usual Suspects? The Bronx Tale, and he was in The Usual Suspects. The son of Rose, a homemaker, and Lorenzo Palminteri, a bus driver. He was raised in the Belmont neighborhood of the Bronx. Palminteri is of Sicilian origin. His grandparents, Calagero Palminteri. I don't think I know who And Rosa person. Bonfante. Married in 1908 and immigrated to the U.S. in 1910 from Menfi in the province of Agrigento, Sicily. Jesus. Agrigento. Chaz Palminteri. Oh, okay. The Chaz Palminteri. He struggled to become an actor, splitting his time between acting in off-Broadway plays and moonlighting as a bouncer alongside Dolph Lundgren. Mm. Can you imagine going to a club and Dolph Lundgren and Chaz Palminteri throw you out? God, I don't even think anybody knows who Chaz Palminteri is. Everybody knows Chaz. Everybody no. knows who Chaz Palminteri is. His big break came in 1988 with the premiere of his autobiographical one-man show, A Bronx Tale, which I didn't know was about him, oh. which he wrote after being fired from a club for refusing entry to talent agent Swifty Lazar. Hmm. Robert De Niro later developed and directed a film version. I knew Robert De Niro did that, but I didn't know Chaz. Palminteri yeah. was about him. Hmm. It was a good movie. Did you ever see Bronx no, Tale? No, never did. It's really good. And they turned it into a play, I think. And it's about race relations, oh, sort really? of, in uh, New York at the time, at the in the fifties. Oh, uh, and it's like he's he's an Italian kid. You know, it's like they're like mafia type yeah. ties, and then he likes a black girl. Oh, but you can't bring a black girl home, and it's like right. a real. And then he, you know. The black people don't want him dating her, and the white people don't want him dating her. But they keep sneaking off and everything. It's kind of, uh, it's it's really good. Yeah. It's a really good. It's a little yeah. recommendation for yeah, you. I'll recommend that. Okay. Uh, and I tried to watch the play, but they turned into a musical. Like when people start singing, I'm like, I don't. Ugh. Yeah. I'm out. That's just me. I'm not good with that. And that leaves. I only have one more thing, but it's the greatest thing I, we've ever covered on American. Time no. Lives. Come on. This is going to be the greatest moment of American Times hit, Timeline's history. All right. All right. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. 
On May 21st, 1952, Lawrence Terod was born in Chicago, Illinois, the youngest son in a family with 12 children. Oh, Jesus. Terod, with his four sisters and seven brothers, think about this, they grew up in a three-room apartment in the Robert Taylor Homes with 12 children in a three-room apartment. How is that possible? His father, Nathaniel Terod, was a minister. After his father left when he was five, he just he was mad at his dad, so he changed his name to Lawrence T. Rowe. So his dad was a minister. Yeah. And, and he then he left kids. his wife with 12 kids. I don't know how you couldn't. I'm not saying yeah, you should. Yeah, another example of the hypocrisy c- of, you know, religion sometimes. In 1970... Lawrence T. Rowe legally changed his name, his last name, to just T. His new Mr. name, T? Mr. T, was based upon his childhood impressions regarding the lack of respect from white people for his family. Oh, poor He said, guy. I think about my father being called boy. Aww. My uncle being called boy. My brother coming back from Vietnam Aww. and being called boy. So I question myself. What does a black man have to do yeah, really. before he's given respect as a man? Yeah. So when I was 18 years old, when I was old enough to fight and die for my country, old enough to drink, old enough to vote, I said I was old enough to be called a man. I self-ordained myself Mr. T, foo. So the first word out of everybody's mouth is Mr. That's a sign of respect that my father didn't get, that my brother didn't get, that my mother didn't get. Don't give me no talk back, sucker. <laughs> anyway, this is one of my heroes. Mr. T's the best. Uh, he attended Dunbar Vocational High School where he played football, he wrestled, and he studied martial arts. While at Dunbar, he became the citywide wrestling champion two years in a row. He won a football scholarship to Prairie View A&M University where he majored in mathematics, but he was expelled after his first year. Mm-hmm. And for the life of me, I looked everywhere all over the internet. I couldn't find out why he was expelled. Hmm. Um, so I, I don't know that. I wish I knew. I would Maybe we can have Mr. T as a guest. Uh, but next he worked as, oh, he, he then enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1975, and he served in the military police corps. After his discharge in the late 70s, he tried out for the Green Bay Packers of the NFL, but he failed to make the team due to a knee injury, which I didn't know that. And I'm glad because the Packers fucking suck, and I have another reason to hate the Packers. I'll they just leave now. They, they didn't sign like, Mr. T. Uh, you could talk about this fucking for Packers. hours. Hey, stupid Green Bay Packers. I don't even have you to You had be a chance here. to have Mr. T on your team, you idiots. All right, a little bit more about Mr. T, and we'll go. He he worked as a bouncer at the Rush Street Rush Street Club Dingbats. It was at this no, time. No, remember we went to that one pl- bar that he had been a bouncer at. We did in Ding- Chicago. It was Dingbats? No, it was named something different. But maybe they, I think they had changed the name. Maybe it was originally Dingbats. It, it was, was that on Rush one Street. that. Yeah, it was that Rush one Street. that was down. Timothy O'Toole's. Yeah, I want to say that was right. Well, that was on Rush Street. I think it was near Rush Street. Yeah. So. Maybe we were at the place. I think Mr. we were. We, you know, I I can't remember, like, buddies of ours saw him. Because we lived in Chicago for a while, and he's from Chicago and lived there. Right. He had, a, he had a mansion, or he had a big, fancy condo near there um, at the time. And people said they would see him, and I was always looking for him. But anyway, at this club is where he he would put on gold chains of people he threw out. Their gold chain would fall and he put them on. Yeah. And then he started gathering all the gold chains. Uh, I bet that was so uncomfortable, though, to yeah. wear all and those gold chains. And then after a while, he just became that. You know, it was like his thing. Yeah. 
Um, but then, then they yeah. beefed him up. They, then they gave him a mohawk, and then they gave him the no, earrings. He had, I think he had the mohawk already. What about the earrings and all that? All the feathers and yeah. stuff like that. That was maybe added, but... I think that was I think Hollywood. the gold chains were added, but... Well, they you know they found him. Sylvester Stallone found him on on like one of the first reality shows ever. It was like a bouncer competition. Oh, Jesus! On TV, and it was like, and they tossed midgets. One of the things they did was oh they, they would God. toss midgets. I like, believe the preferred people, nomenclature sorry. is. Yeah, yeah. I feel like when you say what it is, you have yeah. to say tossing midgets because it doesn't have the same effect if I say tossing little people. Right. You don't quite get what it is, but. Yeah, because it's the whole thing's bad. It's not calling them the right thing too, but they would toss little people. Uh, Doesn't sound good. Hopefully, either. they paid them a lot, but the little people. I mean, but anyway. So Sylvester Stallone's one who found him and was like, "Hey, he's the first. He should be the villain in Rocky." And then that's where he met Hulk Hogan. And then Hulk Hogan was like, "Oh, you'd be perfect for wrestling. Just get a guy with a mohawk like this. And yeah, come wrestle and all that." Uh, anyway. Mr. T is the only thing that keeps our marriage going. No. But he became, later he became a bodyguard for like Michael Jackson, Diana Ross, Leon Spinks, Joe Frazier, things like that. He so when did he change and go in front of the camera? You when, keep saying he's behind the camera. No, when Sylvester Stallone discovered him while he was a Oh, bouncer. that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yep, that was Sorry. it. All right. Anyway, anything more about Mr. T? Yeah, he wa- he was on Sunday NBC TV. He was America's toughest bouncer. It was a TV show. Was th- yeah. Oh, he actually threw a hundred and fifty pound stuntman who broke through a wooden door. Uh, <laughs> All right. Anything else? This was riveting. Uh. Well, part of that, he had to box like a guy a lot bigger than him, and he gave him a bloody nose. Uh, he was interviewed by Bryant Gumble before the boxing match, and he said, I feel sorry for the guy who I have to box. I just feel sorry for him. <laughs> the fight was scheduled to last three rounds, but Mr. T finished it in less than 54 seconds. So he was a real boxer? And that's, where, and that's when he said, I don't hate him, but I pity the fool. Oh, and that's when that he was no, he said that li- No, he said that line Rocky, too, and that became his thing. Um, but, but Sylvester Stallone was, saw that interview with him before the boxing part of the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, yeah. So he wasn't a boxer. I don't think he just did it for that. So. Okay. Got it. And then he boxed Rowdy Roddy Piper at WrestleMania two. He boxed or wrestled? He boxed Rowdy Roddy Piper. They did a boxing match in WrestleMania and Rowdy Piper, oh, who that's is like a turducken. Rowdy Roddy Piper is a wrestler, but yeah. he was like, oh. I'll fucking go to toe with anybody. And so he <laughs> he fought Mr. T. All right, we're done. Boxing match. We don't need this story right now. WrestleMania 2 No, great. we're not bringing in the... We're in 1952, for Christ's sake. Was it WrestleMania 1? I think We're not two. talking about wrestling. 1952. Might have been WrestleMania 1 that they did the boxing. And WrestleMania 2, I think he teamed up with Hulk 1952, Hogan. the wrestlers had wore, like, little G-strings. Or not G-strings, but... No, I'm not but, saying uh, 1952. Speedo. They look like Speedos. Two. Pulled them up way past Over their, belly, their button. belly button. Yeah. Yep. Well, they did that in wrestling too back then. He had big curly handlebar mustaches. Yeah. WrestleMania two is when that was in. God, why are? You, all right, it's time <laughs> to get out of here, Chuck Berry. 
Wait a minute. You can't just. We're not going to go talking about WrestleMania 2. Nobody has asked you any questions yeah, about that. Yeah, Mr. T and Roddy Piper were in a boxing match from WrestleMania 2. I was right the first time. Uh, and Randy Savage fought George the Animal Steel. <laughs> yeah, you know Thanks what? I'm going to the... tell you what I tell my kids in my class. Yeah? Answer me two questions. Okay. Randy are Macho you... Man Savage is the greatest wrestler of all no, time. No. And Did, I Are you also in charge? Have... <laughs> I am in charge. No, Charles is in charge. And the second question is, did somebody ask you the rules? Those questions always go together, and I, I say them <laughs> I about five it. times a day. I'm not sure I get what you're hinting at, because number one, I am in charge, motherfucker. No. I'm the one who posts these episodes. I do all the editing. Okay. I got us listed on iTunes. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. You know what? Let Dale through. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening. It was nice and fun. Just two people. It was just low-key kind of... Not as yeah, like nerve Amy, Amy gets Amy gets nervous when we have guests. I don't get nervous. Quit saying that. Well, more nervous than me because you usually don't know these folks. Like I your don't. People I, know. I don't get. I'm not nervous. I just it's it's less well, relaxed. Well, let's just say I edit out falling out, fallings out between Amy and you the guest every week. Not. You stop every week. Amy and, I and the guests get into it, and I have to edit Fight. it all out. They she they end up calling her a bitch and storming off the set. So I have to like recreate. And sometimes I do impressions of the guest who's left. All right, good night. Just to get fill in the <laughs> empty. Good night. Matt Truman, by the way, Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest rock and roller in all of all time. And so the music you're about to hear, created by Matt Truman Ego Trip. The music in the beginning of that episode, created by Matt Truman Ego Trip. Buy his albums and pay more than what they're going for on Bandcamp, okay? Support this fucker. He's the greatest of all time. That's right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. in experimental sound at the new school. Experimental music. Experimental music. Yes. Uh, will you tell us quite seriously whether or not you consider what we're about to hear music? No tongue in well, cheek, but serious. No, perfectly seriously, I consider music the uh, production of sound. And since in the piece which you will hear I produce sound, I would call it music. You will call it music. John Cage and Walter Walker.